I am uh, Bill Borman Cornell. I'm from Trinity Christian College, um, where incidentally we're rolling out a new series of master's programs next year, including uh, children's literature, uh, which I'll be teaching in. So if anyone's looking for a good children's literature program, uh, you know, it's also in Chicago. That's kind of nice. Uh, anyway, that plug aside, that was my Jim Rooks imitation for a moment there. Um, uh, other things that you need to know, uh, you can reach me at that email if you need to uh, at all. And we're going to talk about class discussion. Before I go any further, let me tell you uh, how I'm really not qualified to talk about that, but well, anyway. I'm a literacy researcher. Most of my research focuses on use of graphic novels in the classroom. But uh, a couple years ago, maybe it was only a year ago, there was an issue of um, uh, educational leadership journal that came out. And the whole issue, and this is a big journal, the whole issue was about ways to improve class discussion. And it was right around the time I was asked to do this, and I thought uh, the amazing thing about uh, CEA is sometimes it can cover a lot of stuff that you wish you had time to read, but you're too busy, like, frivolously throwing away time on things like grading and caring for students. <laughs> um, so I, I read that whole thing and distilled it down into what you're about to hear. This is all the latest research on teaching uh, how to do discussions. Uh, and you just kind of get it without the trouble, so that works out great. I'm doing this for you in return for the fact that you uh, teach students. And I don't know of any more important calling in the world. Um, when I advise students coming into Trinity, sometimes I'll advise people who are pre-med, and I'll go, oh, that's valuable. I mean, it's not teaching. But I, I guess you save lives in your own way there. Um, I have two amazing daughters. Um, people who are in this room have taught them, and that made a huge difference for them. So thank you for that. In return, here's some kind of cool stuff about uh, class discussion that you can use Monday, which is what you're after, right? Like, give me something for Monday. We can do that. Um, so here we go. First, though, I want to talk a little bit about what we have uh, in the room. So we'll start with a couple easy questions. Um, those of you who teach uh, kindergarten, first or second grade, can you raise your hands? Okay, that's because they have mastered class discussion in every way, so they don't need to be here. Uh, third, fourth, fifth? Okay, way to go, people. Those are people teaching kids who can understand sarcasm but cannot use it back at them, which is impressive. Um, so let's see, that'd be uh, middle school. Okay. Everyone just look at them for a second and, like, way to go, people. And the great thing about that is the middle school teachers are going, what are you talking about? I have the best job ever. And the other people are going, we want you to keep thinking that. Um, and then high school teachers. Okay, so we got a nice mix. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Um, and so you all probably use discussion in your classroom, and you all do a fabulous job with that, so way to go. Uh, every now and then, though, something goes wrong. Not a giant radioactive ant, but that looked cooler than any other picture I could find. Um, so I want you to think for just a second about uh, a time when maybe a, a class discussion did not go the way it was supposed to go. Or maybe when it didn't go at all. Um, or maybe when it took a turn in the very wrong direction you did not want it to take a turn. Um, you are all uh, incredibly brave people. Anyone want to tell me about one of those? Yeah, what happened? Well, 
we're talking about nature through a short story, teach English, and there happened to be a squirrel that showed up <laughs> on our windowsill, and it was about this time of the year, and a student blurts out during the discussion, I bet you he's looking for his nuts. <laughs> At which point you have two problems. <laughs> One is you still have a squirrel on your windowsill. Um, yeah, uh, and we will not cover that so much in here. I will tell you that in the event of a, a bee invasion or squirrels, uh, there are really only two options. And one is to get rid of the squirrel in a way where it is still alive. There's another option, too. Um, and in terms of the, I can tell you, too, about anything that goes like that, where you have some kind of um, vaguely sexual reference in a comment, um, I find the most effective way to stop laughter in that case is to explain it to them. Um, as soon as you do that, it'll stop immediately. I can guarantee that. That'll do that. Thank you. That was fantastic. Appreciate that. Good. Anybody else have a story of something that went maybe slightly wrong? That one was great, but yours might be as good. It's possible. Only one? Oh, there we go. Yes. Okay, hold on, stop a second. <laughs> I feel so incredibly privileged to be in the room with someone who just said the sentence, I was showing the students the tattoo I have of Jane Addams. It does not get better than that, but go ahead. They're, just for the record, they're those ones you know you lick and... Just... <laughs> 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 Cowards. So what did you do? I said, that's a really interesting question, and I believe she is, and, um, and I don't think we should let it, in. I explained it. Good. Um, yeah. I mean, when something goes off the rails, you make a decision, right, about whether you want to follow that train or not, and if it's something that could be useful, you follow it. Nice. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Um, I'd love one more. If I get one more disaster story. Yes. answering that question. And before anyone judges, he was in a tight spot and had to do what he had to do. Yeah, so there are going to be disasters that happen. There's another kind of, and thank you, by the way, that was wonderful, thanks. The other kind of disaster that we're not talking about is maybe even more common. It's just not as good of a story. And that's when 
you're trying to get the kids to respond to something, you've written eight million really, really clever questions, and you cannot get them to say anything, no matter what you do. Um, we're going to address that a little bit more. Um, we're also going to address uh, some other problems that come up. Sometimes you're in a classroom, um, at least maybe this has changed. I taught in high school for 10 years, but that was a while ago. Maybe now all these problems have solved themselves. Um, but when I taught them, the other problem would be that some kids always wanted to answer. I mean, always wanted to answer. And then there are some kids who never want to answer, and there are a lot of kids in the middle. And so you're trying to figure out how to get everybody involved. And you also, I mean, well, yeah. So, so those are at least three different kinds of disasters. The one that's a good story, which usually involves something involving a body part. And then kids who won't talk or kids who always talk. So those are mainly the things that we're addressing a little bit. And what does the discussion look like when it goes really, really well? It, it doesn't look like that, probably. But I, I like that picture because it shows everybody raising their hand, which kind of implies that everyone's all in, which is kind of what we're looking for, right? Um, so think about that for a second. The discussion you had that really, really went well, where like everything was, was clicking. And probably after that's done, at least this is the way I feel, when that's done, if I've had one of those and I leave that classroom, I feel so amazing. Like, I'm walking out there going, I am the best teacher ever, and I didn't even say anything. Man, I got it started, and it just rolled. That's kind of the thing we're going for, right? That's kind of the thing we're looking for. And that doesn't mean that you start grading papers and just let them talk. You guide that discussion, right? But they're involved, and they're participating, and things go really fantastically like that. Um, so... Uh, what are some characteristics of that, or what, what's some things you observed about when that happens, when it's going right, what do you notice? Yeah? They're invested or really intrigued by the topic. They have some sort of natural inclination to participate, not just you saying, hey, this is important. We're not pulling teeth, right? It's, they're like right on the edge going, oh, but, but what about, right? Okay, good, what else? Yeah? I was going to say, they start asking the questions. Yeah, sometimes the best discussion starts when they bring it up in the first place. Yeah? It connects to what they care about, or you at least help them make that connection, right? Three very excellent responses. This side of the room, or I guess that's the middle, I don't know what it is, kind of out in front a little bit. You guys, pressure's on. Any other characteristics? Yeah? When you present an idea and then you're asked to try and come up with something where that happened to them, they love telling stories. Boy, especially about themselves, right? Um, Kids love to talk about themselves. That's part of identity formation, and it's a really good thing. Any other characteristics? Yeah? They build off of each other. Yeah, I agree, or I disagree. This, I'm telling you, this is my favorite thing in the world, whether I'm talking to my friends or students or whatever. When somebody starts an idea, and then other ideas come in, and we just keep kind of growing from that, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah? I think you know that what they're talking about is going to be remembered. Right? It's information that's going to be remembered. Because they're in it. And sometimes they came up with the idea. Now, it's, maybe it's an idea that you already have written down in your lesson plan. Right? But when they come up with it, not only the kid who comes up with it, but the other kids, too, are going, hey, we, we did this. Right? So if you can, and thank you, and thank you all of you, that was fantastic. If you can kind of keep that in mind, those, those ideas in mind, we can't get every discussion there, 
But that's the goal we're seeking. And boy, if you can get kids to do that, I mean, they have a great experience too, and they take that forward into their lives. It's, it's fantastic. So uh, to get to there, to get to that point where everybody's all in, partly we need kids to participate. So what are some reasons why, and I love this picture too, because of this, this poor little one right there, who's going like, I don't know. So why wouldn't kids want to participate in discussion? Because it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes they don't think they know anything about it, and they just kind of want the teacher to tell them what's important. Excellent. So I'm afraid that I don't have anything to contribute, right? I mean, that's kind of what they're thinking. Okay? Yeah. Don't want to be wrong. Terrified of being wrong, right? Because, boy, that's awkward. Um, yes, absolutely correct. If, if you would have said that, and I would have said, no, that's not the way it works, you would feel bad. But also, everyone else in here would feel bad. It's, it covers everyone. Everyone else is going, I'm not, I'm not going into that mess if I'm going to be told that. Sure, yeah. What else? Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes they don't feel safe. Yeah. And what is it they're not feeling safe from? Is it mostly the teacher? Could be the teacher, could be the peers, uh, could even be something else we're not thinking about. Yeah, yeah, excellent, fantastic. Anybody else? Yeah? So sometimes it's not that, they, that they're scared, like this little girl, sometimes it's that their mind is all over the place. I remember trying to teach Hamlet the first year I taught English, and there was a kid who just was not participating, I finally went over and said, hey, what is going on with you? You're not participating. And he said, well, uh, I got my girlfriend pregnant, and uh, my parents kicked me out of the house, and her parents kicked her out of the house, and we have nowhere to live. Oh. <laughs> well, if you considered how Hamlet might help. <laughs> and actually, Hamlet does help because he's in a highly dysfunctional family, but that's not the point. <laughs> So, yeah, they got stuff going on, right? Okay, good. Anything else? That's fantastic. Good work. Okay. So how can we change that? Um, one of the uh, articles by a woman whose last name is City, which I just think is awesome, um, said there are four fulcrums that must be in balance for a successful discussion. Safety, right? And that's the one we just talked about. That's the one that makes things scary if you don't feel safe. Challenge because no one's going to want to participate in a discussion that's, that's easy, uh, that's too easy, right? I mean, if I would ask a question like, um, uh, so does anyone know what state we're in? You all might kind of go, well, yeah, but I'm not going to be the dork who points that out. Like, that's kind of obvious, right? So it has to be a challenge. Authentic participation. So when a couple of you, Caleb and the person over there somewhere, a couple of you said something about, um, you know, it, it connects to them, it relates to them. They're able to connect to it. There, there's an authenticity of them being involved that doesn't mean it always has to relate directly to their lives, but it has to be something they care about. <coughs> Do you see that? If I'm trying to generate interest in something they don't care about, i got to first make them care about it. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little warm up here. Okay, so, uh, and then Ownership. And we talked about this too, right? When we were talking about characteristics, we said sometimes they need to be the ones who come up with uh, ideas or at least move the discussion in a certain direction. If every time they try to say something, I'm guiding it, 
then they don't have an opportunity. And that's actually something I have to work on in my teaching. I guide too much. Uh, control issues, I think. Sad, really. Safety. <clears throat> okay, so we'll start with this one. Obviously, if you want kids to participate, they have to feel safe. But think about this a minute. They not only have to feel safe, they have to feel really safe. Um, because why would you participate if there's any question at all, right? If, if there's a chance it's going to go badly for you, don't volunteer because it'll be bad. So how do you do this? Well, a couple things. Uh, the first one, you dignify all responses. My amazing, beautiful, and highly talented wife taught me this uh, very, very early on. Um, we were t I was talking at one point after I started teaching about, boy, I'm having trouble getting these kids to, to respond. She said, well, are you dignifying all the answers? And I said, am I what? Um, dignifying the answers means I'm not going to say that something is right when it's wrong. But if someone is willing to participate in my discussion, I have a responsibility to let them know that they're doing a good job. Now, I can do, I was trying to be a good example before. I can do that individually or corporately. Earlier, I was doing it individually, which was, and I was, that was not faking. Like, I'm serious. Those were really good responses. So when I say, excellent, nice work, you feel good, but the people around you also feel safe, right? And I'm not, I don't have to exaggerate there. I want a good discussion. You're saying good things. I can also do it corporately. I can say, wow, this is a fantastic group. You guys are sharp, you're involved, you have things to say. Even the people stuck by the pillars are like leaning over to try to be part of things. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, when I do that, you feel safer. But I think we can actually take this a step further. It's not just dignifying the responses. It's also being uh, explicit about the fact that you're going to do that. I just finished working with a freshman orientation group in college, and I know you've got some hard stuff to work with, but when kids come into college for freshman orientation, they're as bad as any, I mean, they're just, like, terrified. Like, they don't know. I had one kid who I found out was incredibly embarrassed because he had no idea how to do laundry and stuff was piling up. Um, so they're like that. So what I do on day one is I come in and I say, look, um, we're going to have a discussion, and you need to know this. If you say something, if you say anything, I absolutely promise that I will appreciate it and I will make sure that it sounds awesome. And I have sometimes had students say things that maybe were not quite accurate. But I've been teaching for a while, and so have you. Some of you have just started. You know how to turn things a little bit. And to say, yeah, that's great. We should think about this a little bit more. So if this is true, then, right? And so the person feels like, hey, I contributed. And they don't notice when their whole idea kind of gets turned in another direction. So this is probably the single most important thing to do. If you dignify every response in your classroom, I guarantee things will change. And that means really doing it, because sometimes we think we're doing it because we go, uh, yeah. Well, that's not quite the same. It's even better if you go, that, you remember before when I did that thing about a couple people in here said this or whatever? When I do that, that's even more reinforcing. So they feel better. You don't need to be reinforced. You're teachers. I could tell you you're wrong, and you'd go, no, I'm not. <laughs> but for the kids, this is really important. Okay, we've all heard about wait time. Uh, wait time makes a difference. I think, though, when we talk about wait time, we're actually talking about two different things. 
One thing is a chance for kids who are really thoughtful but need more time to have that time. And sometimes that's a matter of giving them a moment to write in a journal or write something down so they can think it through. Sometimes that's talk to your partner stuff, right? We do that. That's one kind. The other kind is um, wait time is an incredibly powerful motivator. Um, so you've been in this situation before where you need a response, and so you just wait. And everyone starts to feel really uncomfortable. So if I would say, think of the most embarrassing story that ever happened to you that you really don't want to tell. Okay, somebody? I won't, but if I went on, there, I guarantee you there will be six of you who would be going, ah! and I'd pick them and they'd go, this is a really bad story, I don't want to tell it, but then they'd tell it anyway. So we also use it to, to bring out that information. The trick, though, is to let it be silent. When instead we keep going, anybody, anybody, we're filling that void. So we just got to take a step back and be patient. You can be more patient than a, one of your students. You can totally do that. Uh, annotation exercise. This is uh, one quick thing that you might try. That confusing acronym, I'm afraid it stands for uh, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Podcast. Um, it's a pretty cool podcast if you're a, a literature person. Uh, but in there, they do this interesting thing where you often ask your kids to, to write, well, I mean, it depends, but if you have a sort of textbook where you can do this, you might have them put sticky notes in it, or you might have them write in pencil, but annotate as they read, that's a really important skill to have. Well, they're annotating and annotating, and they annotate all semester long, and maybe you have them turn it in, and they look at, you look at what they annotated, you go, good job annotating, and they go, yes, more annotating, what is the point of this? If at some point you can take the, have them take out their books with their sticky notes or whatever, and then ask them to trade, you want to let them know that you're going to be doing this, so they can edit any strange things that might be in there, Trade with another person, um, and each of you find an annotation that interests you. Uh, so if, I'm, uh, if I've got uh, my annotated textbook, and Caleb has his annotated textbook, and we trade, I look at Caleb's annotated textbook, and I go, well, that's interesting. So then, when it's my turn, I'm going to say, uh, you said blah, 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 and that made me think of blah, 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 blah. And then... He says, oh, that's interesting, because what I actually meant was blah, 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 blah. And we go, cool. And then we do the other way around. That can be a good way to kind of prime the pump and get people talking about stuff. And it works with any discipline where there's any amount of reading from an assigned reading thing. Um, so that can be a cool thing to do. Um, save the last word is another exercise. I think I detail it in the notes there. Uh, but essentially, it's a way of, of providing safety by allowing the person who brought up a topic to have the last word. Because sometimes we're all concerned that we're going to be misrepresented or misunderstood. Um, and I think the information is in there. I want to move on because we're tight for time. Or we will be. Uh, challenge. So, my students hate this. Some of them do. Many of them do. Possibly all of them do. Molly, what's the percentage actually? 76% hate this. <laughs> I'm not going to ask Molly where she falls in that. When I teach, um, I assign readings, and then when they come to class, we discuss those readings, and I've given them a series of guiding questions, and on day one, uh, they've filled out a little note card for me that has their name, 
sometimes things like their favorite food. Sometimes they ask, where are you coming from and where are you going? I get really interesting answers to that. But I have these cards. I shuffle them so they're in random order. And then when the discussion starts, I call on at least five people from those cards. Which means if you're coming to my class, you know that if you did the reading, there's a good chance you're going to be called. And you know if you didn't do the reading, there's a good chance you're going to be called. Probably it's a little more on the second time. After I've read five of them and other people start saying stuff, I pull back. But to get it started, I do that. Why do we have to do that? Well, research shows that if you don't use a randomizing method, you might think you're going randomly, but you're going to pick people who seem like they're a little more focused, seem like they have something to say, or people who you know you can count on. So I would just pick Molly, because I know she's <laughs> going to say something intelligent, and that's, that's actually not bad for Molly, but it's really bad for somebody sitting next to her who isn't getting picked. And the thing is, all of our students are children of God, which means we want to teach all of them. We want all of them to learn. That's a really important thing, right? They are all intelligent in different ways, but my job is to teach them across all those ways. And if I keep picking Molly, that means that people over here might never have a chance to participate in discussion. But Dr. B.C., what if they're incredibly shy? Yeah, yeah, that's tough. Um, how many of you were incredibly shy when you were little? Look, hold your hands up. Look around. Okay. These people all talk to human beings in large groups for a living. They do it every single day. How did they get there? Well, they were helped along the way, right? So I still need to call on my incredibly shy people before my special ed teachers rush the front of the stage and pummel me to death. I don't want them to feel uncomfortable. So I do all the things I do before with safety, but if they really have some struggles, I sometimes also let them know, listen, here's a card with a question that I'm going to ask you. So you know I'm going to ask about it. It's an easy question. You already know the answer to it. It's going to be fine. There are ways to do that, but then that slowly gives them confidence. It's also great to be able to talk when you're sitting in your seat. Sometimes when we teach speech, we, we, like, they don't say anything. And then after two months, suddenly they have to stand in front of the whole group and talk. If you've been talking from your seat, it's a whole lot easier. Um, yeah, using silence is a way um, of uh, challenging them and forcing them to kind of uh, respond to you. You have to have a greater tolerance for silence than they do. Big guiding questions for reading. This is important. Um, I don't know what your schooling was like, but when I studied history, I loved history, but boy... For like eight years, all I would get were these dittos where I had to fill in blanks. And so when you read, you just look for another important word in that sentence, and you scan until you find the important word, and you go, okay, Holly Smoot Tariff Act, and you write that in, and you're all set. You're not actually reading. Big questions force them to really think about what they're reading or gaining knowledge in any other way, right? Um, if you're a phys ed class and you ask them some big questions about fitness, and tell them, we're going to talk about this next time, so you've got to do some thinking about that. Um, that's going to challenge them. <clears throat> don't take I don't know in response to a divergent question. Um, we should back up and explain, like, four types of questions. Um, so there are convergent questions. Anybody know what those are? This is a convergent question. <laughs> uh, 
Convergent questions only have one right answer. There are times when we want to use convergent questions, when it's review, when it's stuff that everybody knows, that's okay. Um, uh, and it depends on your subject area, right? But a convergent question, only one right answer. Divergent questions have all sorts of answers. Those are really good ways to start a discussion, especially when you're asking about what they think. If I ask you what your favorite food is, could you get that wrong? No. I wouldn't know if you did, right? So that's a divergent question. It'd be better if I asked you why that's your favorite food, but it's the same sort of principle. There's, and I think we might get to these later, but I just want them out now. It's the third kind of question, which is a question, it's convergent often, but it's a fishing question. This is worse than a convergent question. Um, if I would say, uh, so, does anyone here know what the best part of driving a Prius is? Now, there's an answer to that question, but it's in here. And so it seems like it's a divergent question, but if you would say, uh, I really like the way it looks a lot like a sports car in many ways, um, I would then say, oh, uh, anyone else? That wasn't what I was looking for. And somebody else goes, I really like the gray interior, and I would go, oh, uh, no, that wasn't it. Anybody else? You start to feel more and more uncomfortable because you're going, I'm trying to answer this question, but I can't read your mind. So um, whenever you notice that you're fishing, that there's a particular answer you're looking for, and there's no legitimate way they can narrow that down, stop that line of questioning. It's not helpful. And then the other kind of question that probably none of you use is a question that's more of an entrapment question. These used to be much more popular. Uh, happily, we've learned not to do them. But it's one where you're trying to catch the, the student in an error, um, or catch them in not knowing something. That's just mean. Don't do that. Uh, you know that anyway. Okay. Um, uh, debating. Another way to challenge is to have kids do a debate. Now this gets really confusing because, um, at least in this country, we've taken what was once a really wonderful idea, which is a debate, and through largely the presidential election system, we've convinced people that a debate is an occasion when a bunch of people stand at a bunch of podiums and a reporter or people in the audience ask them questions, which they then fail to answer. That is so not a debate. Uh, in your packet, there's a description of um, a couple things that are important about debate. One of them is a debate usually turns upon a resolution. A resolution is a statement that you're either going to um, approve, you're going to say, I agree with the resolution, or you're going to disprove it. That's important because it provides particular wording. If we have a debate and I say, okay, so pizza or ice cream? That's the debate. You guys are pizza, you guys are ice cream. You might be going, hold on, what about pizza or ice cream? Which is a better way to feed teenagers? Probably pizza, it's cheaper, uh, at least if you get the really bad stuff. Um, we don't know. So if we have a statement, that's where we begin with. And then in your packet, there's a really nice um, listing of um, time amounts. Normally the way a debate works is there are timed speeches, for lack of a better term, where people make their point. The first time your students do a debate, none of them will take all their time, guarantee it. But if you do more than one, and they start to learn how it works, this is a chance for them to say stuff, the other side to say stuff back, and it never ends up in a shouting match, at least while the debate's going on, 
because only one person is speaking at a time. That's a good system to use. You might think about that. Um, ask what else? That means I'm supposed to ask you. Uh, any other ways we can challenge kids with discussion that you can think of? Where it makes it you know, a little more of a, of a difficult thing in a good way? Yeah? I like to ask how so. Oh, thank you. Yep. Yeah, this is also important for another reason. I think this might have been on a previous slide I didn't talk about. Um, when I said don't take I don't know for an answer, generally speaking, if students respond and you know that they're just giving you something so they can be cool, right, like, I don't know. When I get a student that says, I don't know, I go, oh, boy, any answer in the world works, but not that one. Try again. Uh, like, fish? Okay, what about fish? Well, like, they swim and stuff. Okay, they swim, that's a good start. What else do they do? If, if the student knows that I'm going to keep after them until I get a full answer, it's way easier to just give me the full answer. <laughs> right? And so if you do that with each of your students, you'll find the answers get fuller and more complete. What if they really don't know? You're a teacher. You'll know when they really don't know. And when they really don't know, you can back off. But when they say, I don't know, they do too. And you can even say, oh, come on, you are a highly intelligent person. I know that. You've got a much better response. What do you got? Seriously, I don't know. No, no, you're so funny. I love when you do this. But no, I really don't have the answer. Right? Um, no, dude, I don't know. Okay, tell me something that you would say if you did know. You keep at them and they'll get there. Okay? Authentic participation. Hey, we already talked about that one. That's great. Um, Here's the other thing that's weird about the way we teach sometimes. If your classroom is set up in rows, it is really hard for the rest of the... So, this is Darren. Darren's sitting in the front row. Darren, can, if he turns his body, he can see me, and he can see, like, the first three rows, and that's all he can see. He actually feels like he's here totally by himself, right? Um, but if you're sitting there... You can only see the people who are in front of you. You can't see all the people who are behind you. In a discussion, we engage with other people. So setting up our room so that it's a circle, or a semicircle, or two nested semicircles, one inside of each other, means at least any student will be able to see a good number of the students. And ideally, if they turn their chairs, they can see everybody. That makes such a difference. Otherwise, it seems like it's one-on-one -on -one just between you and the, and the student. Does that make sense? And then Socratic questioning, there's more about this in your packet. I don't have time to go into it fully. But Socratic questioning is kind of a variation of what I was doing before with the I don't know. Except it's where you follow up. It's, it's exactly the suggestion that you had where you keep, um, kind of give them a follow-up question. Why do you think that? What else can you tell me? And sometimes you can even lead them down a particular road. Real quick story. Uh, I, when, I taught, uh, in, uh, when I taught high school, I was an English teacher. And one of the things I would teach was uh, the logical fallacies. And one time, this wonderful thing happened. I had a student reading her journal out loud to the rest of the class. And um, this was, I taught at Ileana Christian High School, which is uh, right uh, near the border. But now it's, it's always on the border near um, Illinois and Indiana. So I was teaching there, and uh, this kid writes a, a journal entry, and she says... <laughs> I really can't stand Indiana drivers because they all ride the brake. And I said, okay, this is, this is a great way to teach uh, generalizations for a minute. So I said to the student, um, so 
uh, have you ever ridden behind anyone in this classroom who's an Indiana driver? And she says, yeah, I've ridden behind Laura, and I've ridden behind this person, I've ridden behind that person. And I said, okay. Um, and did that person, did all those people always ride the brake? Well, no, Laura doesn't ride the brake. Okay. And Laura is an Indiana driver by your definition, right? Yes. Okay. Therefore, you can't really say all Indiana drivers ride the brake because Laura doesn't ride the brake. And then in a moment that completely stunned me, she raised her hand and said, well, you can say that, but I know what I believe. <laughs> so you sometimes get those too. But by leading them with a series of questions, you get them to realize things about themselves, right? Um, so um, a couple quick question and answers. I'll get you started because you're about to ask this. Um, what group size works best for discussion? Hey, that's a great question. Anyone know? What I just did there is I turned the question around and gave it back to the audience. That's a good thing to do. What's the best size for a discussion? Five. Five. Anyone else? Twenty. Twenty, good. Anyone else? Whatever works. All three of those answers are correct. I don't think there is a best size. Partners works really well sometimes. Sometimes small groups of three, sometimes five. Sometimes you split your class in half. But I'll just put in a plug for a whole class discussion. I think a lot of amazing things can happen when you have 25 brains working on the same problem. And I love group work too, even though my students don't. But sometimes it's good to just keep it all together there. What do I do if everyone talks at once? Anybody? Oh, come on. I like your enthusiasm, but... So how are we going to decide who goes next? Yeah. Well, I teach middle school, and the younger middle schoolers like to use the Native American talking stick. We pass that Absolutely. Around. It does not have to be a stick. I prefer a, a talk, a talking stuff wombat is what I like, but... <laughs> Any object that can be passed works this way, right? You can also say, how do you guys think we should solve this? Um, and that might be a really good thing for them to learn, especially in light of the way there are a lot of really smart people on national 24-hour news who don't know how to solve that problem. So it's great that they can figure it out. Um, what if everyone wants to talk but no one is listening? Right? Like, okay, 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 stop talking, it's my turn. Okay, whatever you're saying, be done with it. I want to talk. I have this good thing I want to say. You're, you keep talking. How do we get them to listen to each other, respond to each other? Any ideas? Yeah? Yeah, now, of course, if you do that once, the person's going to go, Bob, Tom, um, I... I I like the way Bob says things. Um, but if they know you're going to do that, if you say, you know what, for this discussion, we've had some trouble lately with you guys not listening to each other as well as you could, and you've been doing great, but this would be even better. So for this discussion, every time you speak, you're going to start by summarizing what the person before you said. You're going to say, well, Bob was saying that he really likes pizza because it has lots of toppings, but I don't agree for this reason. Okay, that's great then I at least know that you know what Bob said. Another thing you could do is have them take notes on the conversation. Debate is a great way to learn how to do that because you can't argue against somebody unless you have that information. Okay, we're almost done. 
Um, other questions from you? And I won't have the answers, but other people in here will, so it'll work out great. I'm not nervous at all. Questions about discussion, how to make it work, things that happened to you, or anything at all? Yeah? Uh, just a simple question. So you said it's good for the kids to space each other, but not every day am I putting my desk like that. So if um, we want to have a discussion, but it's probably only going to end up being maybe a five, ten minute discussion, and I don't want to rearrange my room every day according to that piece. So what would you recommend, or just leave it that way and have kids look at each other? Or it's not as ideal, but if you're in rows, so this room is, is pretty horrible. Um, if we were going to have a discussion, I might have everybody on this side of the pillars stand up, turn their chairs uh, 180 degrees, facing the back, put them back down. That's weird because now it's sort of like, it's almost more like it's antagonistic, but at least we're looking at each other. Um, i got to tell you, I've found the results from taking the time to rearrange the room a little bit in a discussion can be really huge. Um, I totally get what you're saying, and I actually have to work in some classrooms with really long tables. Uh, sometimes, if it's important enough, we pile all the tables in the back, and we just put our chairs in a, in a circle or a semicircle, just because that way it, it takes the barriers away. They can't hide behind their laptops as well. Other stuff. Yeah. Yep, and that's a great thing to do too. Yeah. So all my students are perfect, and they always do all of their assignments, and they're never absent. <laughs> of course. But let's say that for some reason one of them didn't finish the reading and the guiding questions for today, or one of them was absent for a very legitimate reason, and now we're expected to have a 20-minute discussion over the guiding questions. They do not have the ability to participate, and I know they could take notes on it, but now they're getting all the answers to their homework. Yep. So um, here's the way I do that. A lot of times, uh, what we're doing when we do these discussions is we're really checking for how well they read and comprehended the, the, written, the read the assignment and reading, is what I'm trying to say, okay? Um, so I have these little cards, and they understand that all they need to do is have an intelligent response to one of the guiding questions. If they didn't understand the guiding question well enough to have a response, if they can ask me an intelligent question that shows me that they read the book, that counts too. When they do that, I put a little plus on their card. And every uh, marking period, they get a grade for classroom participation based on those pluses. Uh, I'm really generous. What I tell them, though, is if a couple times during the semester you didn't read, that's fine. I'll just write down DNR, which stands for... <laughs> well, it stands for did not read. It also stands for do not resuscitate. Um, but I write that down, and so, and then they're off the hook. They can, as you say, take notes. They maybe got, they, they didn't get a pass because I wrote a little minus mark on that day, or I wrote DNR on that day. Um, but then, uh, you know, next time they'll know, and now they're scared, so they're more apt to do it. it. It's not perfect, but it works better than reading quizzes, which usually shows whether they remember the color of the hat that the guy was wearing in the second scene, which is not important for you at all, really. There's a hand back there. Okay, anybody else? We're running out of time. Okay, nice. Um, thank you so much. If you have any other questions, feel free to email me. Uh, if I don't have the thing up right now, but you can find me on uh, Trinity's website. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. You guys were fantastic. Good responses.